And now I will introduce today's special guest. On its website, the McMaster Alumni Association quotes today's speaker as saying, she'd like to be remembered for promoting research and the application of knowledge for the betterment of society. An ambitious, perhaps even a massive goal, definitely unattainable, not for Heather Monroe Bloom. You may have heard that old joke, how do you eat an elephant? The answer, of course, is one bite at a time. Well, as Dr. Monroe Bloom's career illustrates, she has never shied away from tackling mammoth projects or achieving outsized results. For the last six years, that's what she's been doing as the principal and vice chancellor of McGill University, one of our most prestigious schools in this country. But her mission to advance knowledge and improve the quality of Canadian education and research started long before she moved to McGill. I won't try to list her many, many awards, which incidentally include the Order of Canada, the honorary degrees she holds, or the public and private boards on which she serves. I want to leave some time for her to speak. But I will say that for decades, she has been the go-to person for countless governments and organizations, both national and international, as one of the most respected thinkers of our time on research and innovation. Prior to accepting the post in Montreal, Dr. Monroe Bloom, who was already a respected, prolific, and widely published psychiatric epidemiologist, spent eight years here at the University of Toronto. She was a professor, a governor, a dean of social work, and finally a vice president of research and international relations. Before U of T, she taught at McMaster and York University as well. But when she took the helm at McGill, she really took her goal of bettering the world through knowledge to a world-class level. She has spoken out strongly and eloquently about the part that academic research plays in driving our economy. She's been a staunch advocate for better and more effective public policy to support the push for advanced knowledge. And recognizing the growing need to pay the piper, she has spoken to the importance of investing in the institutions that cultivate the best and the brightest minds and that in turn support the best and the strongest economies. But she hasn't just talked about these issues, she has done something about them. In fact, she's done many things to address them. She's worked on new collaborative strategies to take more and ever bigger bites out of that elephant. Today, she will tell us more uh, how, now more than ever, universities, governments, and industry need to pull together to secure Canada's leadership in the global knowledge economy and take us to the next level. And she will be pleased to take your questions following her remarks. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in extending a warm welcome to Dr. Heather Monroe Bloom. Thank you very much, uh, Helen, for that uh, very generous uh, introduction. I think my family members, and I'm very proud, my brother Ross Monroe's here in the audience today, wouldn't recognize the person you were talking about. Uh, but I appreciate it, and thank you also to Anna and to Brett uh, of Manulife Financial for your generous support of this event. I'm delighted as well to be back in Toronto and to see so many of Toronto's uh, leaders here in the room, uh, amongst you, uh, McGill's dedicated campaign volunteer leadership, including Senator Michael Meehan of Ogilvy Renault, Eugene McBurney of GMP Securities, Donna Hayes of Harlequin, Stephen Halpern of Goodman's, 
and Tim Casgrain of Sky Service Investments. You've heard a little bit about what I'm going to speak about today, but let me just say that the global meltdown has become a near obsession for all of us, and for good reason. Shrinking revenue streams, bleak investment statements, have triggered gut-wrenching anxiety. Yet the downturn is not the biggest crisis that Canada faces today, though it may be our most publicized. The issue we need to confront is our stubbornly poor performance in building the economy of the future, the innovation economy, the creation and marketing of groundbreaking knowledge and value-added goods and services. Canada is the little engine that could, puffing its way up a mountain, and our old I-think-I-can optimism is no longer enough to get us through. It can be done, but only through strategic, concerted and coordinated action we need in Canada a coherent plan, a coherent vision, and we lack one currently. First, I'll quickly survey Canada's innovation performance to demonstrate how businesses, universities, and governments are inextricably linked when creating innovation. Then I'll propose a new framework of partnership across those sectors essential to drive social well-being with economic prosperity. I'm going to talk today about tough challenges but I do, do so standing on a firm foundation of confidence that Canada has the talent and the resources to make it to the top of the mountain. Established and emerging nations alike are in a race to create meaningful economies in a civil society, and the only ones that succeed will be the innovators. How is Canada performing? Canada's innovation scorecard is as uneven as our geography full of peaks and valleys. Internationally, we're respected. We're seen as safe, honest, and trustworthy. Our quality of life draws talented people here from around the world. At the same time, few of our brands and institutions have global recognition, and we lack transformational international networks, networks that span sectors to strategically mobilize public sector, government, university, and community resources. Our higher education system has developed quality institutions with varied missions, from those that focus on regional agendas to internationally ranked universities driving national and international innovation. Having just returned from Europe, London, and France, and particularly from Paris, and seeing the Herculean strength France faces to reform its undiversified, indeed paralyzed, higher education system has only strengthened my resolve that we must nurture Canada's sometimes serendipitous and deeply underleveraged diversification. With respect to education, Canada leads OECD countries in having a population aged 25 to 64 who have completed some form of higher education. That's great news until you look a little more closely. Our college graduation rates rank first in the OECD, but only 24% of our working age population holds a university degree, a rate that lags fully 10% behind the US. Canada ranks second last among 17 peers in terms of PhD graduates, the talent pool that dominantly drives the innovation economy in all sectors. 
Visionary investment over the past decade at federal and provincial levels has helped Canada to attract, to attract back, and to retain international stars and to give a shot of adrenaline to university research and scholarship. At McGill alone, we have attracted more than 900 outstanding new professors in less than a decade from around the world, over 500 of these recruited from outside of Canada, including more than 150 repatriated Canadian experts. But the times they are changing look south. The new Obama administration has a vision for higher education, research and innovation, and the will to achieve it. Paradoxically, the influx of superb new talent to Canada has had the effect of stretching thin operating funding for research and discovery, and we could quickly face a new brain drain. And for those of us who saw Canada lose top talent with the cuts to research in the 1990s, it is clear that we cannot revisit that scenario again. Momentum is hard to build and to lose it is tragic. Noted American science policy advisor and former president of the University of Michigan, James Duderstadt, claims that it takes on average a decade to build a program of international significance, but only two to three years of neglect to destroy it. Economically and creatively, new federal and provincial initiatives have mapped a way forward to support vibrant regional clusters, energy in Alberta, aerospace in Quebec, biotech and life sciences in Ontario, Quebec, Saskatchewan and BC, information and communications technology in many provinces, to name just a few. But isolated initiatives do not reflect a strategy that builds on the best of the best and propels us to win internationally. According to your own Toronto guru, Richard Florida, 10 mega-regions, which have only 6% of the world's population, account for 43% of the planet's economic activity and more than half of its patented innovations and star scientists, and none of these mega-regions are in Canada. We are still struggling to create them out of isolated population clusters. Our business demographics are similarly fragmented. Canada has a huge proportion of smaller businesses, many successful at the local and national level, but few remaining companies that are large enough, innovative enough, or creative enough to achieve and sustain a stable global profile. Canada's large number of small and medium-sized enterprises, or SMEs, tell another story, one of an entrepreneurial people that roll up our sleeves and start businesses wherever we see a niche. Canadian companies also have a good track record in creating new-to-market products. The next move, then, is for these talented individuals with their smart ideas, new products, and small businesses to aim to compete internationally. And to move Canada into a 21st century innovation world, business expenditures on R&D, known as BIRD, must grow dramatically. Canada's BIRD sits at just 1% of Canada's GDP, two-thirds of the OECD average, and about half the U.S. rate, and it's been in decline since 2001. The innovative knowledge emanating from our internationally ranked university research has not been accessed to create a similar surge in value-added benefits to business, the economy, and our society. What does this add up to? Well, the mountain that the little engine of Canada faces isn't just the rubble from the global economic crisis. We've got one mountain of an innovation challenge, and we've had it since long before Freddie Mac hit the skids. 
the Conference Board of Canada scores Canada a D in innovation, ranking us 13 of 17 countries. And this at the very time when it is essential that we move Canada away from our 19th century manufacturing and commodities-based economy to a superbly educated, creative citizenry and a 21st century innovation-led society. To put Canada's per capita income on par with the U.S. in 15 years, and that is if the U.S. stays exactly where it is, Canada would have to quadruple its productivity growth. So how do we fix this then? First and foremost, we need to start thinking of innovation as a single system, one formed by the interconnected yet unique contributions of business, universities, and governments. To get on track, we need a coherent plan to create a system of profound linkages and to analyze and boost innovation productivity across sectors. Take, for example, the troublingly low rate of business investment in R&D. I've noted that Canada has a small proportion of SMEs, and SMEs have scant resources to conduct research and development. So it's just a private sector problem, correct? No, it's a government problem, and a university problem, and a community problem, and a business problem. If we view low bird as a big picture system problem, we get a very different view, and we see why the government's attempt to boost private sector investment in R&D with tax credits yields very disappointing results. In fact, more direct government investment in business R&D rather than tax credits would allow the best alignment of government and industry goal to strategic investments in targeted and basic university research and graduate level talent de development. The shared platform for building innovation would provide a sense of common purpose for industry, university, government partnerships. We are missing the opportunity now to forge strategic partnerships that would integrate cutting edge knowledge, talent and research from universities into business and government in a way that sustains after creating these results. As another example of working at odds, look at Canada's procurement policies. New Made in Canada procurement practices would foster a more integrated national market for advanced technologies, furnishing incentives for new industry support for research and development. I don't at all advocate protectionism here, but instead of advocating that we take, but instead advocate that we take advantage of the room that we have within our WTO and NAFTA frameworks, the way our competitor countries selfishly do. They do this for significant local benefit. In turn, a bigger market and more business R&D would galvanize demand for graduates with advanced degrees, helping Canada to catch up to its peers and fueling the loop of education to talent to social impact. So let's look at the big picture. Our assets are considerable, but they are fragmented. The various sectors driving innovation are riding on different tracks. Our economic clusters are not as connected or as effective as they could be within our regions, within our nation, or out in the international world. Our approach to diagnostics and solutions simply isn't stimulating real economic growth and social well-being. There has never been a time when we needed to pull together more than we do now to preserve our fine Canadian social values and the life amenities for which we are known worldwide. Yet we don't seem to have a plan. Let me now propose one. Basically, 
To innovate, we must integrate. Canada's unique ratio of small population to huge geography means that Canada is simply not big enough to accommodate one country, ten provinces, and three territories constantly acting in isolation, hoping to capture the attention of institutions and regions that we're all courting around the world. We need a coordinated critical mass of quality and innovation to make a difference at home and abroad. We must commit to becoming full partners in our innovation system. We must connect. To explain this, I'm going to sketch out five quick points. First, having made essential strategic stimulus investments in infrastructure supporting science, technology and innovation, and international recruitment of graduate students, Canada and its provinces now need to increase investment in the full spectrum of research from basic to applied. We need to keep pace with the direction of our peers. Why? Because the seedbed of innovation lies in the curiosity-driven fundamental research that creates the opportunity for applied research and practical and commercial and social benefits. That's how Silicon Valley was born. To create a new vaccine, for example, you have to know how the virus's defenses work. That's basic research, from which then both university and research institute labs and companies can convert this knowledge into innovation by developing new processes and products, for example, a new vaccine. Second, businesses need to invest substantially more in hiring highly educated talent and in supporting R&D. We cannot let the economic crisis scare us into retreating into our comfort zone, that comfort zone being local perspectives focusing on traditional economic strengths of manufacturing and the sale of raw commodities, simply not a winning strategy. Regardless of economic or political pressures, we have to continue to invest in internationally competitive talent, research, products, and services. To build on its existing excellence and reputation, Canada needs system-wide solutions for our low rate of business R&D, one of the most stubbornly persistent causes of our underperformance in an innovation and economic productivity. Third, to attract and fill new knowledge-intensive jobs, we must dramatically raise the percentage of the Canadian population who are university graduates, particularly those with master's and doctoral level education. Roughly 70% of new jobs created in the new economy worldwide require a university degree. Currently only 24% of working age Canadians hold a degree and that's a huge gap for all of us. Fourth, while we focus on constructing our national system of innovation, we cannot go off the rails internationally. We have to act strategically and in systems, not as individuals, in order to connect Canada to the most innovative regions in the world and to raise our international profile. We need to begin celebrating our successes. Canada has a multiple of international partnerships, professor to professor, company to company, government to government, professor to company, you get the mix. And these one-off partnerships contribute incrementally and sometimes meaningfully. But the future, the future of high-impact international partnership, I believe, lies in a new model, one where high performers in key sectors in Canada, industry, government, universities, work in targeted partnerships with the key sectoral players in our peer countries in those specific fields, where closest competitors will become our closest collaborators. Strategically targeted, these new partnerships can connect our fragmented clusters into golden mega-regions, Canada-California, 
Boston, Montreal, Toronto. I'm delighted at the new Ontario-Quebec alliances that are being formed. And we can work to create critical mass to compete glo globally in the innovation economy. And they will do so in a way that reflects new reality, that we must integrate fundamentally our social and human values with our means of advancing economic productivity and success. We can no longer see social values on one side of the ledger and wealth creation on the other. My fifth recommendation is ultimately the most important. We all need to shift away from what the Canadian Council of Chief Executives called a culture of complacency, a sense that good is good enough. The world has changed and Canada and its provinces and people must change as well. We need to recognize that innovation will be the engine of success and governments must have the courage to invest in highly successful businesses, cities and institutions. All policy cannot be equalization policy. Regional equity is not a substitute for innovation excellence. As the main event, equalization is a recipe for disaster. Excellence in talent and product, whether from universities or business or creative industries, boosts our reputation abroad. It's called free advertising. With a global economic shakedown and a Canadian productivity and innovation gap that refuses to go away, it's do or die time. I titled this talk, The Little Engine That Could, because it's one of my favorite metaphors, but it prompted me to think of another defining moment in our nation's history, the creation of the transcontinental railway. In the 19th century, rails, railways were the defining symbol of progress and technological advance. At the birth of our nation, Canada faced a jumble of unconnected and uncoordinated regional railways run by a patchwork of different companies on different gauges of track. Even timekeeping wasn't standardized, making scheduling impossible. Yet somehow, all the different players fighting for their own interests in an increasingly enlightened self-interest began to see the vision of what Canada could become. And they acted on that vision. The fragmented regional lines began to connect. In October, in October of 1873, Workers changed the broad gauge track from Montreal to Stratford to the standardized narrow gauge that would allow this line to link the national system. And they did it, this is real important, they did it in one weekend. 421 miles of track changed in just three days. The building of the transcontinental railway wasn't pretty. There were squabbles and corruption and the shameful shadow cast by the poor treatment of those who labored to build it. But it was completed, and the new railway was the foundation of Canada's prosperity and cohesiveness as a nation in the making. They didn't let short-term greed get in the way of long-term greed. <laughs> Our current innovation system is the 21st century equivalent of Canada's railway just before the Great Transcontinental Railroad. It's fragmented and it's regional. It isn't fully and effectively connected to the world outside our borders, not alone within. How much less valuable would our national railway have been if we never got around to connecting it to the United States? Often our different sectors seem to be running on different gauges. But Canada holds incredible promise. A new nationwide innovation system is ultimately what we need to bring us into the new age of enlightenment. And like Canada's first national dream, we need a strategy to carry it out and a broad distributed leader, leadership with a coherent vision and the will to act on it. 
Canada is filled, literally filled with talented, skilled, and entrepreneurial people. And you and me, the leaders in this room, can be many of the chief creators of this change. A pioneering spirit formed Canada into a great nation, and we are still moved, moved at our core by that pioneering spirit. Working together, pioneering, strategically, we can meet the new challenge, whether we like it or not. The train is leaving the station. We can miss it or we can get on board. Thank you. Thank you. I think we, thank you very much. I think we have time for a few uh, questions or comments. And Jennifer is out there with a mic. If anybody would like to offer an intervention, please uh, raise your hand and feel free to. Don't be shy. Two, three. There we go. Uh, my name is François de Gaspobien. I came from Montreal to hear Heather speak. She's such a good speaker. Um, Heather, many of us agree with you. One of the challenges that we face is that we are one-tenth the population in the United States. Would you be so kind as to share where do you think we should focus? Because clearly in this global economy, we can't innovate across the board in all fields. Um, I think that many of us feel that we need to specialize and focus in certain areas where we could demarcate ourselves versus our southern cousins as well as the rest of the planet. Great. Thank you uh, very much for that, uh, that question. Thank you for being here from Montreal. Um, I think it's a moment for coalitions of the willing. I think to sit back and uh, analytically try and map out the country at this point and say here are the 20 areas that we need to innovate in is first of all doing what others have done. There are a number of good maps already. Uh, at the federal level, the Advantage Canada framework. Um, at provincial levels, many uh, provinces, certainly Ontario and Quebec, have a strategy about what the critical clusters are that draw on this interaction of uh, industry, uh, universities, uh, government initiatives, and indeed other local and community initiatives. What I think is really important is that we, that we act, and I think this room full of people uh, provide a great uh, uh, resource for thinking about what are the two or three things that each of you can be doing, each of us can be doing, in the sector that you're working in, to create that critical mass drawing on the talent here in Canada, and not, not getting involved in uh, political uh, and, and other um, initiatives, and by that I'm citing no party but simply the uh, inherent um, uh, uh, sort of character that we have to be reflective, to, um, to worry about what's going to happen, more than to simply acting when we can. And I think you've done a great job personally at, uh, at seeing action as your mantra, and that's what we need to do. There, there are over 20, uh, 20 thematic areas in which Canada could prevail at the international level at least, uh, and it's simply a time to act and to have high standards and a good coalition of the willing across those sectors committed to getting our name and our impact out in the international context. I wonder if one of our high school students has a, has a question. No pressure. I'm just so happy to see you here. 
Okay, and there, there is a question here at this table uh, as well. Jennifer, right here. Thank you, Henry. I can't see with the slide either. Thank you so, uh, so much for your comments today, Heather. My name is Ellis Kirkland. And um, apropos to your comments today, I, I um, was given a Canadian government scholarship to do a master's at Harvard, which I graduated from with distinction, and later became the president of the Architects Association here in Ontario, as well as the uh, chief negotiator and signatory for the free trade agreement between architecture, uh, between Canada and the States. Uh, I was dismayed to find out that the federal government has removed that scholarship and others similar to it. And so, as a drop in the bucket, I'd like to offer my support to you and your school to deal with the federal government to reinstate some of these programs. And thank you for your, your uh, comments here today, and you have my, uh, my support and my offer of service to you. Thank you very much. Uh, greatly appreciated. In, in fact, Canada went into, as did our provinces, a terrible period of protectionism uh, in the, in the uh, certainly late 80s and the 90s and leading up to uh, very close to today, while other countries were very confident about their ability both to send uh, young people out into the international context in edu education and to recruit in the best of the best from around the world. Those countries that have that as a proactive strategy have done better both from a civil society and from an economic uh, point of view. The good news is uh, that change uh, is indeed happening and the federal government has in several successive uh, budgets increased the number of graduate fellowships being offered and opened up the doors to the possibility of uh, recruiting international graduate students as well as sending ours out and the Vanier scholarships are a terrific uh, example of that. Provinces are beginning to do the same. I think provinces doing that in concert uh, with the federal government, not exclusively. I don't believe in uh, people being held back from doing good things and acting on good ideas. But where we can say, as a country, we'd like to have a stronger presence in you know, these specific geographic regions and really get out and get our, our impact felt there, I think the better the benefits will be for us and for those we're collaborating with. One last uh, question over, Jennifer, over to the left. Hi, uh, my name is Stacy Bonsu. I'm from Father Henry Carr. Um, Thank you so much <laughs> for your question or comment. Um, our question is, um, the, we know that there's a decline in enrollment in universities. So we're just wondering what businesses can do to help promote student enrollment in universities. Great. Thank you. In fact, there's a little bit of an irony right now, and that is that the bad economy is sending a lot of young people to universities. This may be the silver lining in the cloud for Canada, that uh, for those who thought maybe they would work before going to university, they're suddenly thinking this might be a really good time to go to university and get a degree. And for those who had a, an undergraduate degree and thought they might work a bit before taking a, um, a master's or doctoral level support or a professional degree are coming in. But I think it's really important for others than those involved directly in the education sector to talk about the importance of education. 
Back under Premier Robarts decades ago, 60% of the province of Ontario's GDP went into supporting education and the quality of education in this province. Across Canada, the investment in education has fallen province by province by province. Something similar uh, in, in Quebec. Massive investment in the 60s and then declining investment over the subsequent, sub, subsequent decades. So to the extent that you, as high school students, can say this is important and act on it, and to the extent that those of you who are leaders outside of the education sector can talk, as our parents did, about the importance of education, the better it will be for all, uh, for all Canadians. But this is a great time to be going to university. It's a more important time to be finishing high school, and you'll know that Canada's falling as well in its high school completion rate, particularly for boys. And so we have, I think, a very focused mission there. Uh, so it's right, right through the school system. And for all of you who volunteer your time, to working in education are spectacular. McGill uh, volunteers and those of you who volunteer for any educational uh, university, thank you for that, Be uh, institution rather, thank you for that because it's so important for all of us. I'll stop there, really appreciate the chance to be here today. Thank you, Heather, and I'm going to turn it over to Peter Klein, uh, Director of the Canadian Club of Toronto, to offer formal thanks on behalf of the club. Merci beaucoup, Madame Monroe Bloom. I want to, uh, on behalf of the Canadian Club of Toronto, and on, indeed on behalf of uh, hundreds of thousands of ex-Montrealers now claiming Toronto as their, as their home, I want to assure you that. None of us, uh, all of us, value McGill's 200-year history. It's over 30,000 students and 250,000 alumni scattered all around the world. We applaud your leadership of this fine institution, and you're using it as a platform to reach out to all of us and remind us uh, that Canada's advancement in today's global stage is, um, is compromised if we don't act quickly and aggressively to reclaim our place as world leaders and in research and champions in higher learning. Uh, you have reminded us that our nation has the skills and expertise to not only thrive in today's difficult economy, uh, and we, uh, what we need now is commitment to do the right thing aggressively, as you said, and quickly. And uh, we can assure you that we have heard your message and will act upon that. Uh, Dr. Monroe Bloom, uh, thank you for encouraging us, reminding us, and leading us in this new direction. Thank you, Peter, and thank you again to Dr. Monroe Bloom, and thank you to all of our guests for joining us here today. This concludes our television programming, which will be broadcast live, is being broadcast live on Rogers Television, and this meeting is now adjourned.